honestly. <laughs> these, these headphones are like a, you know those um, little metal puzzles that you get? <laughs> you, you were going to say puzzle. <laughs> those little metal puzzles, those little challenges. It's like one of those. Like it is. <laughs> like, does it turn this can, way or that can way? Can you <laughs> unravel this puzzle that you've done once a month <laughs> for two years? <laughs> Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome back. Welcome. Today we are talking about The Push. By Ashley Audrain. Yes, and Jane is just really relaxed because she's just back from leave. So she's Couldn't all... remember my password this morning. <laughs> That's right. Can't remember anything. People have asked me things I don't know. No. <laughs> she's got holiday brain. I feel like I've got about four days worth of being able to say, sorry, I don't know, I've been on leave. <laughs> Before this, expectations. You, you, if you reckon four days, you can get four days out of that. I reckon. Oh, that's good to know. Surely. <laughs> maybe it's one day for every week that you're away. Right. So maybe it's only That's three. only two days then. Three. I've oh, been away you've got three weeks. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, because I was gone for one of them. That's yeah. why. Okay. See. <laughs> no wonder so you can't remember day. your passwords. Got one day left. <laughs> so let's... Dive in. And I also want to say right up front that this could be triggering for people who might have issues with child neglect and abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, just wanted to mention that right off the top. So here's the blurb from the back. The women in this family were different. Blythe Connor doesn't want history to repeat itself. Violet is her first child, and she will give her daughter all the love she deserves, all the love that her own mother withheld. But firstborns are never easy, and Violet is demanding and fretful. She never smiles. Soon Blythe believes she can do no right, that something's very wrong, either with her daughter or herself. Her husband Fox says she's imagining it, but Violet's different with him, and he can't understand what Blythe suffered as a child. No one can. Blythe wants to be a good mother, but what if that's not enough for Violet, or her marriage? What if she can't see the darkness coming? Mother and daughter, angel or monster, we don't get to choose our inheritance or who we are. Mm. Mm. So The Push is Ashley Audrain's debut novel. Um, She's got a second book coming out called The Whispers. Apparently that's close to being complete, so I imagine we'll see that probably in the next 12 months or so. Right. There's a lot of buzz about this book. She apparently reportedly signed a two-book deal for $3 million, which is huge. For especially for a debut novel. The Push has closed on 34 translation rights deals and TV and film rights have also recently been sold. There were, apparently, this is all reportedly, mm. there were nine offers from producers or streaming services and they went with David Heyman who has produced movies like Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and also done a number of book adaptations like the Harry Potter movies, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime mm. and The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. So I think he'll be well placed mm. to do this. Cause the Boy in the Striped Pajamas and Dog in the Nighttime, they're quite unusual books. Yes. So presumably he'll do a good job. Right. 
She was also a publicity director at Penguin Books in Canada. I should have said that up front. This is a Canadian author. Yes, she's from Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) She left that role to raise her two children and before that she worked at a global public relations agency in consumer marketing. So that's Ashley Audrain. Really big deal. It's all over Instagram. People are saying things like, you know, I've had to sit with this book, I've finished it. They're not quite sure if they loved it or not, but they're just letting it sort of marinate a little bit. Right. Things like that. So, so yeah, let's dive in. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) So this starts out with Blythe out the front of her ex-husband's home and peering in at him with his new wife, baby boy, and Blythe and Fox's daughter, Violet. So you know right off the top that things aren't going to end well for Fox and Blythe because she's stalking he and his new wife yeah and Blythe says this is my side of the story so this is written in the second person as a missive to Fox to tell him her experience of their relationship and what happened in it so right off the top we see heaps of similarities to we need to talk about Kevin yeah which I think we'll talk more about once we've kind of gone through what's happened in the book so then we flash back to the beginning of Blythe and Fox's relationship and her insecurity about being a mother and we get even earlier flashbacks to not only Blythe's mother but also her grandmother's history with abusive relationships and patriarchy and all those kinds yeah, of intergenerational problems. trauma mm. things like that yeah. that's the, uh, the picture that starts to be uh, portrayed so we understand that Blythe comes from generations of women who were troubled by mental health issues in their lives and Blythe is determined as the blurb said to be a better mother for her daughter Violet but from the beginning she has trouble after Violet's born feeling attached to her And Fox makes excuses, Fox, her husband, makes excuses and doesn't really believe what Blythe says about Violet. Again, similarities to Mm. Kevin. Yeah. And one day, Violet is at a playground with a little toddler boy, and the boy ends up falling to his death. And Blythe wonders if she saw Violet she thinks she saw something mm. to do with Violet. Like, I think she thinks she put her foot out to trip him. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And there's a lot of, you know, did she create this picture in her mind because of her mental health? Is she, you know, is and this the a way self-fulfilling prophecy in a way? Yeah, and the, yeah, and the way she feels about mm. Violet. So she feels right. very guilty for thinking that maybe she saw that. But mm. it's all very unsure and you question... Blythe as a, a reliable narrator and so yeah this is the kind of suspenseful and sort of yeah deeply upsetting a sort of story we're hearing here and then eventually she has uh, Blythe has her second child who is a son they call Sam and she finally has the motherhood experience that she was wanting initially she feels everything for Sam that she has trouble feeling for Violet she's completely besotted by him And Sam loves his big sister, as little babies who have older siblings often do, look up to them and just think they're amazing. And Violet seems to love Sam too at first, but then her behavior again becomes troubling. 
Mm, do you remember disturbing. some of yeah the things that she was doing? Yeah, was she pinching him? Is that something? Yeah, and she would be in his bedroom. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she'd be just standing there watching him in the night. Yes, and mm. Blythe would go in to either nurse him or check mm. on him and pick him up and Violet insisted that she put him down. Yeah. And very odd, disturbing, odd. strange behaviours. Unsettling is the right word, isn't it? Yes, it was, yes, this building mm. feeling of some impending doom. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, this is another thing I want to talk about once we kind of have gone through the storyline is that, again, the fact that you know ahead of time mm. that Blythe and Fox are not together. You know he's with somebody else and you know that this son of theirs isn't in the picture anymore. Yeah. So that adds to your feeling of, unease knowing that something yeah. is you're horrible. anxious you're anxious while you're reading this yes. knowing yeah yep. and so one day violet and Blythe and sam are out for a walk and sam's in his stroller and they get to uh, a an intersection and violet tugs on Blythe's hand where she's holding a cup of hot coffee and she it causes her to spill the coffee and therefore let go of the stroller and the stroller rolls out into oncoming traffic and Sam is instantly killed. Yeah. And right away, Blythe says she sees Violet's mittened hands pushing Mm. the stroller. And she tells people immediately afterward, the people that are um, attending to her and Fox as well. And the police. And the police. Yeah. That, that's what she saw. Yeah. And everybody. Pink gloves, pink gloves on the stroller. Yes, yeah. she can see it. And everybody immediately dismisses her as a mother, a distraught mother. Yeah, it was it's a terrible accident. Terrible accident. Yeah. That's all it was. Then what ensues, I think, is perhaps the most visceral portrayal of grief I think I may have ever read. And consequently, her marriage to Fox begins to break down. And he she begins to suspect that he's having an affair, which of course you know that he is. Mm, But I wanted to read this one portion from that part of the book that I just found really poignant and true and sad. And this is when, as I say, she's suspecting that Fox has had an affair. And, you know, she has these little inklings because, you know, he's looking at a photograph of himself and he's asking her about flowers. And anyway, she says, but looking at a photograph of oneself is not proof of an affair. And asking a question about a type of flower is not proof of an affair. These are, though, the kinds of things that fester in a person's mind until she no longer feels loved. They are the happenings that took us from a place we could have survived, even in the grave face of a death that nearly killed me too, to the place we simply could not come back from these things became too heavy and too hurtful habitual abuses in what once felt like the safest place in the world Mm. yeah so what happens from there is that he moves in with Gemma who Blythe eventually finds out of course that he's having an affair with and they share custody of Violet so now Blythe's on her own and occasionally with Violet. Mm. And <coughs> it's worth mentioning that her relationship with Violet by this point has degraded almost to this, you know, these two beings just sort of circling around each other. There is no 
relationship. It's fraught. It's cold. It's there is no relationship really. They That's just right. exist around each other. There's clear resentment and animosity from both of them mm. towards each other, mm. and it's a strange, uncomfortable, Strained, yes, relationship. That's right. And Violet seems to occasionally like telling her mother little things about Gemma, her dad's girlfriend. She likes kind of the power of knowing about Gemma when her mother doesn't. And eventually what Blythe does is she dons this wig and eventually befriends Fox's girlfriend at one of these mother's group evening. Yeah, like a weekly workshop type thing. Yes, where they have speakers. speakers and whatever. Yeah. That's right. And initially it's because she's just curious about Gemma and what she's like. But eventually it's more that she tells Gemma that she has, in the present tense, a son called Sam. And so when she's with Gemma... She can pretend that Sam is still alive and Gemma asks about him and she talks about what she imagines he'd be doing at this point. And it's like a respite from her grief to be around Gemma and they actually become quite good friends. Yeah, she ends up, Gemma ends up texting her for parenting advice. They build this relationship and I think that relationship goes on for a year or so. Yeah, It's a proper friendship particularly for Blythe who has no one right she's a solitary human with this tremendous amount of grief and trauma and this is her only outlet and I think at one point she says in there that nobody ever wants to talk about Sam she's never allowed to talk about Sam Fox never spoke about him her mother-in-law never spoke about him obviously Violet didn't this was her only outlet to to talk about him. Right, and, and nobody s- says his name anymore. That's right. It's but incredibly now, sad. That that whole bit is just horrible. Yes. Again, this visceral portrayal of grief and her description of losing him mm. is just so affecting, and I'm going to try and read this. Oh, God, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to cry. Oh, here we go. Go on then. <laughs> <laughs> so what Blythe does to try and cope with her grief is that she will sometimes get Sam's things out of the basement and look at them and touch them and and so this is a an excerpt when I finished caressing each of his things I chose the pajamas he wore the most thin in the knees from crawling after violet stained at the neck from blueberry jam Don't. If you start, I'll start, Paula. Okay. (laughs) The light-knit blanket from his crib. And Benny. I used to be able to find him in that fur distinctly, breathing him in to fill my brain like an anesthetic. But now Sam's scent was nearly gone, and Benny felt a bit damp and musty. I ran my thumb over the stained part of his tail that looked like nothing but old rust now. I'd kept an unused diaper, too. I laid everything out on the bed, each article as it would have been, the diaper inside the pajamas, the blanket laid underneath, Benny tucked in near his neck. And then I picked him up and I cradled him in my arms. Oh, God. And I smelled him and I kissed him. I turned off the nightlight. I tucked in the corners of the blanket so he was wrapped and warm. I swayed to the ocean waves and hummed the lullaby I always sang. I rocked him back and forth, and when he was still and heavy, when his breathing was long and deep, 
I carefully slipped into bed so as not to wake him. I moved the pillows, made a safe spot, and I slept there with him in my arms. Why did I choose to <laughs> read that? I told you. <laughs> this is why we have tissues in here. I know, and it's funny, um, Jane, we, we, as again, again, we never, we try not to talk about the book, but somebody asked us about it this morning, and Jane said, and she was crying, and that it wasn't so much for you know, the characters in the mm. book, but I, and I agree with you that it was because, I mean, we each have sons yeah, who are obviously babies <laughs> and are no longer babies. And didn't it, even though our sons are alive and it seems maybe a bit indulgent, so, mm. it may, but it, it made me feel like I've lost that baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had a big ugly cry at this point (laughs) through the book it was yeah because I I was talking about it to someone yesterday and they said are you you that connected to the characters and I said no it's not that it Mm. was as a reader you always you know you relate things to your own life and your own experiences and of course one of the big themes is this is every parent's worst nightmare Mm. is losing a child Mm. and like you said before, the the portrayal of grief in this book is just, it hurts your heart to read it. It's, mm. It was really hard to get through. And again, this is why I don't read books like this. <laughs> again, <laughs> Even this though was, it was my choice. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was brutal. Yeah, there was another little quote where she said, a mother's heart breaks a million ways in her oh, lifetime. Yes. Yeah. What bit was that? I've she was that wasn't even about her that was her watching another son and his um and his mother yes and the son said no don't come and visit the baby yet because his wife's mother was coming first and that's when she said her mother yeah my mother's heart breaks a million ways yeah and and we've only something for that yeah yeah we've only begun to yeah feel all of those millions of heartbreaks I remember somebody said to me shortly after my son was born that having a child is like putting your heart on little legs and then just sending it out into the world so true yeah yeah it feels so vulnerable yeah and I'm such a crier about (laughs) things like this anyway (laughs) my poor husband he was what is is happening Thank you for reading that out loud. <laughs> yes, and we can put the tissues back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, on with the story. Mm-hmm. The, all of this is to say that she copes with the uh, partially with the death of her child by befriending Gemma, and they become good friends. But then one day, mm-hmm. Fox comes to meet with Gemma at the end of their evening motherhood session and sees quote-unquote Anne, who yeah. is that, who, Blythe. who yeah. Blythe is pretending to be with her wig on, and the jig is up. Yeah. And then Gemma doesn't contact Anne for quite some time. But eventually she does contact her and says she wants to meet up with her in a coffee shop. And so they do, and while they're having their chat, Blythe explains to Gemma what she thinks she saw because Gemma s- starts to say, I'm so sorry about your son. Fox doesn't really talk about it. I just know that there was an accident, but was it a car accident? And so Blythe explains what she thinks happened. And Gemma just picks up her coat and walks out. Yeah. So 
and then they don't have any more communication after that or I think there's some eventually there's some messages because Fox doesn't answer any of Blythe's calls and she eventually tends to just communicate with Gemma about a few little things right um, but nothing but it's no, not a relationship yeah no then there's a point where she and Fox are having a fairly a decent conversation and Fox reveals to mm. her that he says, do you remember that time when after the baby was born and you couldn't find any of your good, good clothes? clothes? Yeah. And eventually Blythe just thinks, oh, it's that new cleaner I got. And she goes out and replaces them all. Mm. And Fox says to her, actually, I found Violet in the closet cutting them all up. Slashing them with a, with a knife. With yeah. a blade, rather, a razor blade. Yeah. And tell me what you thought of that part. I was really angry. That really infuriated me. And I've got the point to mention in a little bit, but Fox was just the worst. I have it here too. I think I hate him. Yeah. <laughs> he gaslit her yes. the entire way through yes. the story. And again, that moment made me furious because I thought you made her feel like a crazy person and you knew all along that she wasn't and it also upset me that she Blythe ends up laughing with him about it yes. initially she's angry but then she kind of they gonna kind of go oh, oh that violet and yeah. I'm like really yeah <laughs> I felt exactly the same like why are you laughing yeah why aren't you hitting him exactly <laughs> I was like I hate Fox he yeah. is the worst yeah I've got more to say about that later but yeah. okay okay yeah. So eventually it circles back to the beginning of the book mm-hmm. where she's out fr- out the front of the house and now you know she's got this missive this story it's of manuscript hers. of yes. sorts yeah that she's going to that she drops she does drop off to Fox and while she's there the only one who sees her is Violet sees her through the window she sees Violet push her press her hands up against the window and she's mouthing something to her and Blythe thinks she's saying I pushed him I pushed him she says asks her to repeat herself and she doesn't so uh, you still she says I think that's what she said yeah but you still don't know for sure yeah and then of course so that's the end of the second person missive to Fox because now she's dropped it off yeah but then it skips to one year later Gemma calls her up and says I think something's happened to Jet, which is her, her, her new baby. baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the end. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> it was a challenging book to get through. I read it in one go, though. It was super engaging and thrilling. Yes. It had these really it short me. chapters mm-hmm. that really... Little punchy chapters. Exactly. Yeah. Like one two page chapters that really made propelled the story forward yeah absolutely it was extremely engrossing so there's some broad themes within the book there's obviously nature versus nurture Mm. which was you questioned that because of the generational trauma and what Mm. happened to her mother and her grandmother it's that age-old question about are we born evil or are people born evil or bad Mm. there's the theme of what makes a good mother yeah and the societal expectations of mothers and what we should be saying and what we should be doing for our children. Mm. There's grief and trauma and what this can do to a person 
mentally left unchecked. Yeah. And I think this book exploits and plays on our greatest fears as a as parents. I didn't mind being manipulated to feel how I felt, <laughs> which yeah, I know contradicts everything I ever say about what I will, <laughs> will and won't read. But So do you think the greatest fear is losing a child or is the greatest fear having a child mm. who you don't connect with and who could do such horrible things? Gosh, I don't know. Oh, I know. I mean, she had both, didn't she? She so had both, yeah. <laughs> she had all the worst fears. <laughs> Realised. <laughs> lots and lots of people have commented on the similarities between We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver and this book. Kevin is one of our favourite, you're my favourite books. Yeah. Tell me what you think of the comparison. I feel like the story suffers from the comparison to We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yeah. I kept comparing in my head because of all the similarities and I feel like it's unfair because this is a debut novel as Mm -hmm. we've said and you know Lionel Shriver has been I don't know how many books she'd uh, written by the time she published Kevin but in my mind Kevin is a complete masterpiece and this didn't quite deliver in the same way in my opinion as Mm -hmm. Kevin did and I, I think well no a couple of differences boys we know that boys like kevin exist because we read about them in Mm. the paper uh, particularly in the states when the columbine thing happened you know that was all in the news so you know that children like kevin exist maybe they don't come to come to exist in the same way that kevin has but it was an interesting look at how perhaps somebody like that could happen i thought it was an interesting choice on the uh, on the part of the author that we know everything up front mm. we know as i said that Blythe doesn't end up with fox we know that sam isn't in the picture anymore we know that fox will cheat on her mm. and whereas with kevin um, Lionel Shriver held back Mm. this one extremely poignant and life-altering fact about what was going on, which was that the protagonist's husband and Mm. child were dead and that Kevin had killed them. And that reveal at the end, I feel like, made the story feel so poignant and so whole and Mm. so, of course, this is what's happened. Yeah, it was a slow unraveling, wasn't it? Whereas this is more in your face I think you're right I think it's unfair on for both books to make the comparison there's obviously the broader nature versus nurture theme that is common between the Mm. two of them which you can't dispute that but I think Kevin's so much more of a psychological analysis Mm. maybe of Eva the mother versus this which is sort of more generational abuse Mm. trauma angle i guess yeah and, and i didn't they're, dif- they're different books they're different lionel shriver is very very literary mm. this is a, written a little bit more accessibly i would yeah, say yeah i would say it's a bit more genre thriller yeah. yeah fits in that quite nicely into that thriller genre yeah, yeah. i feel i almost wish i read this independent of mm. kevin or not knowing anything about that book because in comparison i feel like this feels sort of pointless at the end i felt like and maybe it was a bit of a ripoff the way the ending was so abrupt. I mean, I know she did that on purpose for effect mm. and it did have an effect. Yeah. But I felt like it was not quite the punch that I needed. And because Kevin was such an affecting book to me, 
this left me feeling a bit lacking. Okay. Another question for you. Okay. What is it about evil kids and unfit mothers that disturbs us so much? Mm. Why do you think this has hit such a nerve with people? Yeah, I guess it's because people always want to blame the mother, don't they? Yeah. That is traditionally if a kid's done something wrong, they've not been mothered correctly. Mm. Yeah, nobody's ever looking at the father or considering the whole nature aspect of it. That's right. I guess, you know, it is a commentary in the broader societal expectations of of what it is to be a mother or the perfect mother. Uh, She did an interview for the Toronto Life in which she says the push is about what happens when we don't believe women and when we dismiss their experiences because it doesn't fit the narrative we want. That, that was in, in response to why she chose the producer for the film slash TV adaptations and that's, that's how she sort of encapsulated what the book's about and thought that they could do the best job of that. So I thought that was really interesting. We have a set narrative of what a mother should be and when they don't fit it, it's their fault. Yeah, that's interesting. I sort of skipped over the snippets that are about her mother and Mm. her grandmother Mm -hmm. but perhaps it's even more about people not listening to them Mm. because you know they didn't necessarily want to be mothers that's right and particularly Blythe's mother I think it was Cecilia Mm. and her husband completely dismissed yeah uh, her not wanting to be a mother and then she was a terrible mother I've got that down here as, as well. I think the real failures in this story are the three fathers, Blythe's husband Fox, her father and her grandfather, generations of women let down by the significant men in their lives. Right. Clearly ignored, not communicated with, needs not met. Not believed. Not believed and gaslit. My gosh, mm. Fox gaslights Blythe the entire way through this book living in denial about Violet's behaviours, ignoring his wife's own strange disruptive behaviours mm. and clear to the reader but obvious mental illness. Mm. Even when, we cl- we close, when we're close to the end, we find out that Fox, when we talked about it before, hid the fact that she slashed all of these clothes. Mm. He hid this from her and he allowed her to feel like she was losing her mind. Yeah. You know, and maybe that... That treatment perhaps enabled her to fall further into the depths of mental illness. Right. Which is what that can do. If, you, if you've, you're not believed mm. or taken se- seriously. And you're, so you start second guessing mm. everything. Yeah. About what you think. Yeah. Mm. So I, f- I found that frustrating that, you know, the focus is on, on the mothers when really maybe it's the fathers that were the ones that caused all of this that's a really good point and it's something that i think comes up in news stories about when things happen to children all the time you Mm. know people are always looking at the mother and sometimes yeah i think well where was the dad in that situation that's right what responsibility does he have yeah exactly Mm. Mm. what do you think about the title at first i thought it until we got to the point where the baby's pushed onto Mm. the to the road i had assumed that it was about the birth Mm. of both of the babies and in the, in it was in relation to that but now obviously it's I think it's you know 
was he or wasn't he pushed? Uh, yeah, I, well, I think you're right about all of that because uh, mm. I read Ashley Audrain talking about the title and how it was just this untitled work for mm. a long time and then she came up with the push and she liked it because it evoked all those things that you yeah. just said. So yeah. it works on all those levels. Yeah. And, uh, and I think she also mentioned about the push to get through grief and... Yeah, push on mm. with motherhood, with life, yeah. with whatever. That's right. Yeah. How did you find it being written in the second person? Well, you know, I immediately was like, oh, I love something written in the second person, which <laughs> I've said to you before. I didn't realize the whole thing was going to mm-hmm. be, practically the whole thing was going to be in second person, though. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure about that. I found it... When with Kevin, because she was like actually writing letters to him, I think yeah. it felt different than yeah. just the whole thing being you, you, you. I I didn't mind it either. I f- I appreciated hearing the voices of Etta and Cecilia throughout the book. I uh, think that as that, a break, yeah, it mm. broke up the occasionally monotonous voice of Blythe. Mm. I liked those being interspersed to add a bit of depth I guess to the story and diversity of voice right I found them sometimes confusing oh yeah I had to keep thinking who who's that now who's editor yeah to Blythe and which one's the grandfather and yeah. all of that and who was married to that Henry guy and it was a little bit confusing yeah I'm not sure if I loved that way of delivering that information okay I, I'm not sure I almost feel like this could have stood alone without that. And yet, you know, if we could have gotten that information in mm. a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should say that these little bits from the past are in italics mm-hmm. throughout the book so that they it sets itself apart so you know that it's, you know, going back in time and talking about the, the history mm-hmm. of um, her yeah, mother and grandmother. Did you feel empathy for Blythe or Violet? I didn't feel empathy for Violet. No, and I think this is what I was starting to make a point about with uh, regard to Kevin, that we mm. we know that boys like Kevin exist. Whereas mm. I feel like Violet's character was just so strange. Mm. And I didn't understand why. And I guess that's the point, as you say, nature yeah. versus nurture. Mm. But it just, I guess I haven't encountered that before. It just seemed like an, uh, like an odd, she seemed like an odd and unrealistic to me little Mm. girl Mm. yeah I've probably felt the same I think I think the grief that Blythe felt enabled me to feel empathy for her Mm. because her some of her behaviors and I don't you know there's no mention throughout here of postnatal depression or anything like that you know you could very easily subscribe her behaviors to that but even before she had the baby she seemed a little odd Mm. uh and a fairly cold person yeah I guess because she was just so worried about what sort of mother she'd be because of the experience of neglect that she had as a child yeah she seemed lonely but I, I think once she had the baby and I guess this is maybe me projecting my own expectations of what it is to be a mother and how you feel about your children and that sort of thing, I guess, that enabled me to feel more empathetic towards her once I could see she could feel something. Mm, right, when, once Sam was born. Yeah. Yeah, certainly I felt empathy for her mm. throughout the whole thing with Sam. Horrific. Honestly, I don't know if I've read 
a description of grief like this before. Mm, yeah. And she wrote this while she mm. was, I don't know if it was while she was pregnant, but certainly when her baby was a baby. Yeah. So I guess that's what. And her baby was quite unwell. She He was hospitalised. <gasps> oh, I didn't very realize. Very seriously. Oh, I didn't know that. So I don't know that she was writing it while he was hospitalised, but perhaps shortly after, and that was part of why she she stopped working as well was to be with the children but he one of her children were, was very seriously ill so I guess that that experience probably mm. informed, informed. Mm. yeah snap yeah <laughs> <laughs> so did you like it I did I liked it I read it compulsively it has stayed with me there were like we just said it you know it doesn't compare to Kevin and I don't think it is fair to do that mm. anyway but I yeah I've told several friends don't read this because <laughs> it's too sad <laughs> <laughs> I I enjoyed it and I can see why there's a buzz about it and I can see uh, I like the questions that it's raised I love the nature versus nurture argument I think that's really interesting yeah what about you yeah uh, well like I say I liked it she's a good Good writer. I'm looking forward to seeing mm. what she does next. It'd be interesting to see what the whisper. What is it called? The whispers. Uh, the whisperer or the whispers. whispers. I'd be interested whispers. in whispers. Yeah, I'd, I'm interested in that. I think it's a solid debut, and I would definitely watch the TV series. You said. Oh God, I would never watch it. <laughs> I can't believe you'd watch it. <laughs> Much crying do you want to do? <laughs> Good one. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, completely horrendously sad one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you've read other things. I have. I've read a few other things and I just wanted to talk about one of them, which was this wild, One Wild and Precious Life by Sarah Wilson. So this is another one that's sort of, you know, been floating around since last year, partially written during the pandemic period. Mm. The little tagline is a hopeful path forward in a fractured world we fight to save what we love we need to be in nature to return to our true nature to be held and awed by it to love it wildly so that we will fight for it so this is a really challenging book sarah wilson lives like a wildly different life to what you or i would lead we were talking about it before we even mm. recorded um an aspirational aspirational life where she really truly lives and breathes her values for the greater good of humanity it's big big themes in this book mm. the book is part autobiographical it's part roadmap for living with, for a more connected and meaningful life it's also a part partially a call to action as well i really enjoyed this mm. and encourage people to try and to challenge their thinking in regards to what we value as a society and what we want for society it's a really engaging interesting book it's interspersed with interviews and facts and figures but that makes it sound boring but it's mm. not I don't really read I don't love reading books where it's just reeling off 66 percent of blah 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 is mm. recycled and you should do this instead right. it's not it's not too preachy like that the autobiographical element that's weaved through it is really interesting it talks about her desire to become a mother in her 40s oh. and start trying IVF with donor sperm and how she was unsuccessful with that and 
eventually her acceptance that she wouldn't become a mother and what that meant for her. So that's that's weaved through it as well. Mm. And then she's also weaved through it. She's a really mad keen hiker. And the hiking that she does is amazing, like all over the world in Japan and Europe and Australia and the States, like huge big three-day hikes where she'll literally take a bag and camp on her own in proper wilderness. (laughs) This is what I mean, so nothing I would ever do. Talk about that last weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And what she gains from being in nature and connected to nature uh, so that was a really interesting thread through the book as well. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it was. It's it is a challenge to read because you do come away from it thinking I could do so much better. Right. Not for just myself, but for the world. So yeah, yeah. Jane and I have spoken about the fact that we're both sort of beginning to read Phosphorescence by Julia Baird. So we'll talk mm-hmm. about that next time. But we Jane was saying it was a good companion piece to that one and it does sound Yeah. Really I can I've only just started Phosphorescence and I can already see some links between the two books. And they're both the most beautiful books you've seen. Oh like, the covers. Like, look at the mm. cover. Isn't that gorgeous? Mm. In totally different ways. Yeah. But yes, both very phosphorescence looks like it sounds. Yes. And that one is sort of what would it's you call that? It's sort of like a dark and strange. A bit Asian almost. Yeah. Mountains and clouds and Yeah, I liked it. Good I one. Think you should try it. Yeah, I think I want to. And you said that's by the author of the book I Quit Sugar. Yeah, which was another... How interesting. And I was saying to Paula before, I had a, I guess, a assumption in my head about what Sarah, who Sarah Wilson was based on the I Quit Sugar books, mostly because I haven't read them because <laughs> I don't want to quit sugar. <laughs> Even though I should. who wants to do that? <laughs> and, you know, she was one of the hosts on Master Chef, so you kind of just unfairly subscribe this perception that you have of her but she's lived like I said you know she lived for eight years with a one 15 kilo bag that and that literally was it wow that's all she had wow she had nothing amazing Amazing. she doesn't buy anything she's so unmaterialistic right because she just doesn't want to put value into things she values connection and experience (gasps) and the earth yeah really I want to read that well, I uh, also read Shuggy Bane by oh, Douglas you Stewart. did, finally. I did, finally. It won the Booker Prize last year. And so this is a debut novel as well. It's an epic family saga, portrayal of working class family in 1980s Glasgow, Scotland, about the very bleak life of Shuggy Bane, who is the youngest son of Agnes Bane, whose second husband... Shuggy's father eventually abandons the family and then Agnes sinks into her alcoholism. And Shuggy adores his mother, but she is often unavailable to him because of her alcoholism. And also he's quote unquote different from the other boys. So because of that, he's extremely lonely and also has the the pressure of trying to, among other things, manage his mother's poultry welfare money before she drinks it all away so it's another story (laughs) of abuse (laughs) and neglect Uh. and another extremely depressing read so that was 
So you had a good month then. Yeah, well, the discomfort <laughs> of evening, remember from oh, last month, yeah. and then the push. Or no, I read Shuggy Bane first, and then the push. Yeah. <laughs> it's been very... Can you read very nice things next I will. <laughs> let's hope. This is another one that's going to be made into a TV series. Mm. So look out for that. And that's around the place quite a bit. That keeps popping up on people's... You've got to read this list. Yes, it's got a cover that's extremely grey and it fits the story very well. It all mm. seems very grey and bleak. Yeah. Yeah. This one. Yeah. So I thought we could do listener feedback. Yeah, let's. We've got a question. Hi, Jane. Hi, Paula. Um, my name's Emma. I'm from Adelaide. Long time listener. First time um, commenting. Um, love your podcast. Thank you. I'd love to know how do you choose the books that come into the library collection and also if I or a member of the public wanted a specific book, is there a request process at the library so that you could get it in on our behalf? Thank you. That was a good question, wasn't that it? Is Two the, questions Yeah, from Emma. it is a collection-based question, which we love yes. being library people. Thank you, Emma. So the first question was, how do, how we, do we get? Yeah, how do we choose the books that yeah, come into sure. the library? We encourage most of our library staff to have a role in selecting for the collections. This this enables us to have different perspectives in the collection. So different people are of course going to choose different types of things, and we want to be representative of the community and representative of diverse voices and opinions. Yeah, and if you have an area of inter that interests you, then you can say, oh, I love graphic novels. Yeah. So you can choose for your selections yeah. to be the graphic novels, yeah, which I think is Yeah, great. you can be a bit of an expert in, in a particular area. So that's generally how things are selected. We we keep an eye on what's what's trending, what's hot off the press, we know what's about to be released. We're in touch with publishers. All publishers pretty much have up and coming release emails that get sent to bookstores and people who buy books. So we earmark, you know, big things about to hit the hit the shelves so that we can get enough copies of them in and be prepared for them. Yes, we've got certain authors that they know they just automatically send to us because we know they're going to be very popular and you're going to want That's them. That's right, yeah. And we also like to do some lo what we call local purchasing where we go to actual bookshops as well so we we can see and feel and touch what might be might be of interest for people those little niche trending topics you know a couple of years ago macrame was eaten a bit so we made sure we got lots of macrame books and keep on top of not just uh, authors but actual topics and areas of interest as well yeah good one it's a great job yeah, it is. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Get to go shopping for the library. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Emma's second question was, can the members of the public request books? And of course, they can. Absolutely. We love people requesting books. And we actually have a little video on exactly how you can do that. So I will put that in the show notes and I'll post it on the Facebook group. So if you do have something that you want to request and you want to know how to do it, you have a look at that and it'll show you exactly how you can do it. It's easy peasy. Yep. Nice very one. much. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Emma. So do we shall we do news or do you want to do what's coming out? Let's do what's coming out. Okay. And then we'll do news. Okay. And then we'll do our next 
book. Sounds yeah? good. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit, after a little bit of a lull, always there's a little bit of a, you know, right at end of December, January, there's a little bit of a lull and then it starts to ramp up again as far as publications go. So I've got a few here. Another debut novel by Ali Reynolds. This is an Achette book. This is coming out this month. It's called Shiver. Ali is a former professional freestyle snowboarder and has now started writing books. And so, and I mentioned that because this book is set in the snow. And (laughs) (laughs) its description says this, in this propulsive locked room thriller, a reunion weekend in the French Alps turns deadly when five friends discover someone has deliberately stranded them in a deserted mountaintop resort. So they're saying, imagine Agatha Christie set in the Alps and you have Shiver, a spectacularly sinister debut. Mm. So it sounds a little bit, bit like that movie Alive. Remember oh. that where they plane crashes and they eat each other? <laughs> Does it though? Does it? There's a cannibalism in this? <laughs> Maybe it's because it's the Alps. <laughs> right. I see. <laughs> Maybe it's nothing like right. that. <laughs> but if you like a thriller, it sounds like it's a good one. <laughs> this one is called The Octopus Man. Now, it wasn't quite sounded really strange mm. so I'll just read it and see what you think okay this is by jasper gibson he's a uk writer the octopus man once an outstanding law student tom is now lost in the machinery of the british mental health system talking to a voice no one else can hear the voice is the voice of malamock the octopus god sometimes cruel sometimes loving but always there to guide him after a florid psychotic After a florid psychotic break, the pressure builds for Tom to take part in an experimental drug trial that promises to silence the voice forever. But no one, least of all Tom, is prepared for what happens when the octopus god is seriously threatened. Deeply moving and tragicomic, the octopus man takes us into the complex world of voice hearing in a literary performance that asks the fundamental question about belief, meaning and love. Wow, no, that sounds good. What do you think of that? Yeah, it could come it could ask some challenging questions about mental health. Yeah. The only thing that puts me off is the term octopus god. Sounds are we heading into fantasy? This is weird, but <laughs> I thought I thought of you when I found that one. I thought that oh. sounds intriguing. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Hmm. Kind of for some reason it made me think of the Babadook. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe because of the Malamok. Yeah, the maybe octopus god. Yeah, and it's the links to mental and health. Yeah, mm. anyway. Keep your eye out for that. The Octopus Man by Jasper Gibson. Now, Ethan Hawke, the actor, mm-hmm. has a book coming out. Ah. 2nd of February, A Bright Ray of Darkness. This is a bracing meditation on fame and celebrity and the healing power of art, a portrait of the ravages of disappointment and divorce, a poignant consideration of the rights of fatherhood and manhood, a novel soaked in rage and sex, longing and despair, and a passionate love letter to the world of theatre. A Bright Ray of Darkness showcases Ethan Hawke's gifts as a novelist as never before. Oh, I like Ethan Hawke. Doesn't that sound great? It does. Who was he married to again? I know Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman. Yeah. I wanted to say Gwyneth Paltrow, but I knew that wasn't right. Mm. Uma Thurman, right. Yeah. yeah. So that sounds really intriguing yeah their daughter was in stranger things yes, yeah and she was great yeah in that. she was she was really good <laughs> another one called last one at the party by bethany clift this is a uk author as well it's november 2023 the human race has been wiped out by 6dm by the 6dm virus 
and in brackets it says six days maximum, the longest you've got before your body destroys itself, the end of the world as we know it. Yet someone is still alive, alone in the new world of burning cities, rotting corpses and ravenous rats. One woman has survived, a woman who has spent her whole life compromising what she wants and hiding how she feels to meet other people's expectations. From her career to her relationships to what she wears and where she lives, she's made a lifetime of decisions to fit what other people want her to be. But with no one else left, who will she become now that she's completely alone? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Do we want to read that right now? It's challenging times. It that is. Sounds like a challenging premise. I mean, anything. And that November 2023, that's pretty soon. This is not like... Oh, that's in. when it's set. I yeah. thought you were saying that's when it's out. No. <laughs> I was confused. Right. Yeah. No, that's... Yeah. It's yeah, set not soon. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Which adds a bit of, you know, a fear, pandemic fear to it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That it's not going to be for everyone. <laughs> no, and I can't work out if it's supposed to be funny or not. Ah, like have a look at it. Looks, and you know I hate this term. It looks a little chicklitish right, from the cover. the cover. Oh, so it's yeah, it's pink and black, and the font yeah suggests that maybe it's a bit a bit jaunty and yeah, ha ha. Yeah, here I am wearing a crazy hat now, <laughs> you know, because I don't have to worry about anyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it could be satire. Yeah, it could be. Something. Mm. Who knows? Yeah. And the very last one is The First Woman, and this is by Jennifer McCumby. Smart, hangs headstrong, Kiribo is raised by her grandparents in rural Uganda. But as she enters her teens, she starts to feel overshadowed by the absence of the mother she has never known. At once epic and deeply personal, Kiribo is the bold and piercing story of one, one young girl's discovery of what it means to be a woman in a family, a community and a country that seems determined to silence her. Steeped in the rich folklore of, the, of Uganda, but with an eye firmly on the future, Jennifer McCumbie has written a sweeping effervescence tale of longing, femininity and courage. Doesn't that sound mm, great? That does. I like the sound of that. Mm. That's a Bloomsbury book. So some really interesting things out yeah. this month. And you can you can see there's quite a number of books now coming out that are slightly dystopian based, a bit pandemic-y. There's lots of – I feel like there's a lot of writing at the moment that's in response to what's happened what in 2020. Through, which makes sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. that's normal, mm. I guess. Mm. Anyway. So I don't have a ton of news. Really, uh, just one item – which is that The Stand is a TV series now. Mm. Just I thought I'd mention that because The Stand by Stephen King is a favorite of so many people. Yeah. So it's going to be starring James Marsden and Whoopi Goldberg and Greg Kinnear, among other people. And um, you'll be able, in Australia, that will be available on Prime. So Great. You have Prime, don't you? Yeah. yeah so we you have can watch all that. of them, Paula, right. honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so much money on streaming. <laughs> and the other thing I thought I'd mention was that I went to see Penguin Bloom. Oh, was it horribly oh, sad? Let me tell you, <laughs> that little bit that I just read from the push that made mm. me cry, basically I had just finished reading that bit oh, when I went to see Penguin Bloom and I just cried the whole yeah. way through. Yeah. Like right from the very beginning, I was like, I know I'm going to be crying through this whole mm. thing. Yeah. It was fantastic, though. I loved it. And I went to see it with my mum, and she loved it, too. Did so. she cry as well? She's not as much of a softie as my sister <laughs> and I are. <laughs> I famously cry in all animal, anything, <laughs> movies, books, I mean, all this has got it all, yeah. Mother who's trying to 
be a mother and is struggling oh, and man. little There's baby. a penguin die at the, the end? The, do you want me to say? Yeah, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> no. Does it, it die? No. <laughs> Get injured? It does at one point. Oh. Yeah, just just cried and cried. It was so good. <laughs> Naomi Watts was brilliant. All mm. the acting was really good. It didn't get amazing reviews, but pe- I guess people thought it was a bit trite or done. But, I mean, it's mm. a true story, so it is what it is. <laughs> I, th- I thought it was fantastic. I'll Loved take it. your word for it. <laughs> Jane's like, whatever, I'm not seeing that. <laughs> You've traumatized me enough for one month. <laughs> and again, you traumatized yourself. I was just going to say that was me. It was you. <laughs> so, next month's book. Yes. We love deciding. We were just saying this yesterday. We love <laughs> the other part of our favorite, favorite part of our month is deciding on what to read next month. That's right. So we said... Favourite is podcast, second favourite, mm. deciding what book yeah. to read next for the podcast. <laughs> Would you like to do the honours? Yes, thanks. We are going to read Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. And Maggie O'Farrell is going to be participating in Adelaide Writers Week, which is coming up at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. So that was another reason why we thought this would be a good pick. But also, it's just on everybody's top books from 2020 lists. Yeah. So here is the blurb. Drawing on Maggie O'Farrell's long-term fascination with the little-known story behind Shakespeare's most enigmatic play, Hamnet is a luminous portrait of a marriage at its heart, the loss of a beloved child. Warwickshire in the 1580s, Agnes is a woman as feared as she is sought after for her unusual gifts. She settles with her husband in Henley Street, Stratford, and has three children, a daughter, Susanna, and then twins, Hamnet and Judith. The boy, Hamnet, dies in 1596, aged 11. Four years or so later, the husband writes a play called Hamlet. Award-winning author Maggie O'Farrell's new novel breathes full-blooded life into the story of a loss, usually consigned to literary footnotes, and provides an unforgettable vindication of Agnes, a woman intriguingly absent from history. I'm really excited to read this. Even though it's about another child who dies. But it's the olden days. So <laughs> we decided not as sad. it's not as sad <laughs> when it's hundreds of years. So when we're crying on next month's podcast, <laughs> you'll know we were have... full of <laughs> it. <laughs> but it also sounds like it's got a bit of a feminist yeah, uh, quality to it. Yeah, and it is, like you said, it's on every, you know, what to read 2020 list. Yeah. So good luck. Yes, grab now a copy. Now, this one's not on Libby, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Sometimes licensing agreements with certain publishers precludes us from having it on Libby, and this is one of them. Uh, but we've got lots of hard copy copies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so grab one and read along with us. And subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us. That would be fantastic. Join the Literary Anything Facebook group. And we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. I watched, we watched that um, new Netflix serial killer, Night Stalker, the other week. Right. It's like a, I don't know, four-part series of the Night Stalker from the 70s, oh, I think it was, 60s, 70s. Oh, my memory's terrible. And even now, because he, like, goes into the houses mm. and kills the women. It's the, Is that the same guy as the... Um, not that golden yeah. triangle oh, guy. No, or whatever okay. it is. Golden no. State yeah. killer. Is that what he was? What's yes. Golden Triangle. <laughs> <laughs>
a weird Bermuda cult triangle. thing or something. <laughs> Never heard of that. <laughs> okay, the so there's a different. This killer. is a different. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the golden triangle. It's a golden stair killer. <laughs> um, no, different killer. Okay. And yeah, he's like would sneak into the houses and hide because mm. the element of he wanted to see the fear on their mm. face before he murdered them. Right. So of course. Now you can't get now out of I bed. Can't. At and night. I have to get out because of my old cat. I have to oh. do things for her in the night. Oh. And so then I have to run back to bed. <laughs> That's how much you love your cat. <laughs> oh. Willing to be fictionally murdered, murdered in my <laughs> <laughs> 